0: For the past couple of weeks, um, throughout the course of the summer, we have been discussing a picture that really is a paradox, and that picture is a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul uh, is the source of that, of course, in Romans 12, 1, when he says, "...I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship." And we are accustomed when we use the word sacrifice to use it in metaphorical terms, like sacrificing time or money or sleep. But in Paul's day, sacrifices were bloody and physical and visual and and living animals being offered on altars. They made noise and they bled and they fed priests. They smelled. They might have caused some nightmares amongst Israel's children occasionally. And so that's why the phrase living sacrifice is a paradox, It begs the question, how do those who are living offer themselves in this complete way to God's will? How do we live as living sacrifices? And so we've talked about a few ways that that would happen through our our bodies as temples, through the giving of our finances and how we spend our resources, how we serve in ministry, all doing that gladly, joyfully, um, demonstrating the total lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. But there are some dangers that we must face squarely if we are going to be talking about things like sacrifice. And these dangers, I think, have a commonality in that they have a tendency to downplay the motive and the importance of motive. So first, we can think of sacrifice only as a means to something else, as, as a way to get a reward, kind of a necessary evil. And so we might say, in order to save up to buy a house, I had to sacrifice by working double shifts for several years. Something like that. It defines the term sacrifice in terms only of what it accomplishes without much concern about what's motivating the the action. And many people have tried to make this lifestyle as a living sacrifice for Jesus into a means to some kind of reward on earthly terms. Sacrifice for Jesus' sake and he'll essentially pay you back on earthly terms. It's that type of uh, idea, and that is a distortion, that's a, uh, that's a lie, it's a corruption of the gospel, where Jesus himself is the goal for every follower of Jesus. He is the sufficient ends to this living sacrifice. The second misconception, I think, is when we think of sacrifice, we think of cost and loss and losing We think of sacrificing fancy coffee for our kids' college or of not eating cake so that when we step on the scale, it's a better number, and it it doesn't really appeal to motive very much either. And so we just want to hit pause in this series and look at motive, because Jesus cared about the motive, right? Not just the end result. He differentiated this when he condemned religious leaders who made very impressible and sizable sacrifices for exactly the wrong reason. And there is a reason why the pure in heart will see God and why there will be some who do all this ministry activity and in the end, Jesus will say, I never knew you. And that's, the reason is, is because motive matters. And ultimately, and, and down deep, everybody knows this, right? Husbands can make amazing sacrifices for their wives out of guilt, fear, or dutiful obligation. But every wife knows the difference between flowers that were given out of a heart of love and flowers that were given out of kind of an annual sense of obligation to acknowledge the anniversary. Wives can practice joyless, kind of suck-it-up submission on the outside. But every husband knows the difference. Employees can work their tails off and go above and beyond purely for their own status and career. And Christians, we can keep their calendars impressively busy with Christian activity and their budgets in alignment with Christian principles and their daily practices in conformity with certain patterns and their discussions free of gossip. All of those things while lacking a motive that matters most. So in all this good and necessary and helpful discussion of sacrifice, we want to look at our motives and consider that. This really is a word of warning And kind of embedded in that is a word of hope as well. Because the sacrifice of our physical and financial and ministry and all those lives will do us no good. And it may even do us harm if we're motivated by the wrong things. So if you think again on Paul's appeal in Romans chapter 12, do you remember what the basis of his appeal was? He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... And it's those mercies that we're going to turn to now. We're going to look at, um, obviously, just one slice of this. We can't look at motive as a whole, but we want to turn to a passage that um, talks about the kinds of sacrifices that God delights in. Okay, We're going to be in Psalm 51. And I think it's very fitting and, and odd, initially, that the Holy Spirit speaks to this issue from the mouth of a man who had just failed in a very, very epic way. Psalm 51 is written by David after he had gotten a married woman named Bathsheba pregnant. You can read all about that if you want in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But our psalm actually starts off with a few important details. So I want to give you a little backstory and then we'll read the psalm together, okay? So David did what we sometimes do with our sin. He tried to cover it up. And Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, he was a soldier in the army. And so David proceeded to give him some uh, unexpected time off. And he even tried to get him drunk so that he would sleep with his wife and become the explanation for her pregnancy. And that didn't work, as you probably know the story. And um, Uriah was an honorable soldier. And so instead of conceding, uh, David arranged for him to be killed in battle so that that his dirty little secret will be kept quiet. Now we're talking about his sin today, so that cover-up plan failed (laughs) miserably, (laughs) if you think about it. Uh, because God sent a prophet named Nathan to expose David. And God promises all kinds of consequences and things to discipline David, but one of which was taking the life of this newly conceived child. And so it's possible that David wrote Psalm 51 as he awaited those consequences. So that's kind of the backstory. So I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Why don't we, if you're physically able, stand in reverence for God's Word as we read Psalm 51. I'm just going to read it in its entirety. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. You can be seated. Here's our point this morning. God's delight in restoring the broken leads us to seek for God's forgiveness and help, which then frees us to praise and serve. God's delight in restoring the broken leads us to seek God's forgiveness and help, which then frees us to praise and serve. Here's a quick roadmap for where we're going. I want to talk about the end goal of this psalm. What is David after with, this, with the entire thing? And then we'll go on a little journey of his life and look at this, the various confessors' things, confessors' confidence and pain and plea and ministry, and look back and consider why it is that God delights in the broken spirit as a sacrifice. We will be uh, finishing with some gospel hope and take some communion together as well. So, to start off, what's the end goal of this psalm? The psalm is really a story. It's a story of a guy who's been ruined by sin, and yet he's also surprisingly confident that God is going to help him. I think this is an odd arrangement. He's sinned against this God in this massive way, and he's actually going to the offended as the offender to get help. And in his brokenness, he ends up getting help and ends up teaching others who must face it as well. But I want to start just by noticing how stark the, um, the transformation is from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm. In the beginning, he seems to be begging in tears, right? He's pleading with the Lord. Those lead to joyful singing. He starts off by facing his judge, talking about he's justified in his words, he's blameless in his judgments. This judge who has broken his bones, to then expecting that same judge to do an inward work in him and create a willingness in him to be different. I think there's an underlying theme all throughout the psalm that's the basis for, for why he wrote it, and that that theme is God's delight. God's delight. What God is pleased in, what he is thrilled by, what what he shows favor in. And this is an odd place. To think that we would be instructed about how to please God. Isn't it? This adulterous murderer's song. How do we know what makes God happy? I know. Well, look at David. (laughs) And what David did. But look at verse 6. I think this is kind of the first indication of it. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What is David's honesty all about? What is is he really after? What is that all for? It's to delight God. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Those are things uh, the opposite of pleasure, right? Right? What is this process of confession and receiving of grace ultimately all about? What's the net result of David's reaction? See, he's got two paths he can go down when he's, he's caught red-handed in this sin. And there's one way that's going to please the Lord, and there's one way that's not going to please the Lord. But that's the ultimate goal of this psalm, is what is going to please God. In verse 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart O God. You will not despise, which is kind of the opposite of a way of expressing. God is pleased with uh, the broken spirit sacrifice. Despising is the opposite of delighting. It's a way to communicate favor or pleasure. And that's what God is delighting in. So this psalm is fundamentally about how to please and delight God. And what a strange place to learn that. Why would it be that this psalm would be the place that we'd learn? Well, we're going to see as we move quickly, kind of through this story of Psalm 51 and his as the story of this confessor. First, we see in verses one and two this confessor's confidence. The confessor's confidence. It's, it's odd that he's seeking help here. Like I said earlier, if you read. 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you will probably just cringe multiple times. Oh, it's it's bad. It's brutal. It's nasty stuff. It's the heart of man exposed, and it's ugly. So you think, why is he writing this song to God? Why isn't he seeking asylum from God? Well, it's because, David says, that he has confidence That God is a certain way. He has confidence in God's abundant mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, verse 1, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. See, David already knows that verse 17 is true about sacrifices of a broken spirit or what are acceptable to God. And so he's going to plead for mercy. Because he thinks God has enough mercy for him. He doesn't insult God by minimizing His mercy and acting like this is the first time he's ever encountered a sinful person in his life. And David is the exception. So he appeals. He says, his mercy, it's abundant. But then he says he's also asking for mercy according to a covenant term, a covenant love. David knows that there has been a covenant commitment that David's included in on. One scholar says, for all his unworthiness, David knows that he still belongs. And notice that David is not asking for mercy because what he did is not that big of a deal. He's asking for mercy because of God's reputation. He's not saying, I I need mercy because what I did is not all that bad. He's saying, I'm seeking mercy here because he's that good. And he knows that about his God. And so he's willing to come to him and plead with him and make these big requests, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly... Cleanse me. I mean, over and over again. These are high expectations for the mercy of God to act in the life of David. And he thinks God is willing and able to do that. David is asking for full reinstatement here. He is not asking for the Lord to crack the door and let him kind of walk, slinking in and go to his room and ignore him for a while and get the silent treatment. I mean, David is just after it because he believes God is a certain way. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a merciful God. There's enough. But notice that in order to offer the sacrifice of a broken spirit, you have to have that confidence. Sometimes we can confess our sin in a narcissistic way. In a way that puts the emphasis on us and not on God. Let me ask you, have there been times that you have sensed urgency to repent and confess of things that had nothing to do with God? Like, my guilty conscience is driving me nuts. Enough people know that I need to kind of publicly acknowledge this. See, we can can confess for all kinds of reasons. Maybe it's even... I am so confident that I am so sick of this that I am willing to change it that I will confess. But David's confidence is in the steadfast love and the mercy of his God. I can remember when I was younger thinking that I needed to cry in order to truly be repentant. So you're sitting around the campfire at camp and there's like five people crying. They're the really repentant ones <laughs> and everyone else, not so much. I just didn't quite know where where should my confidence be in seeking the mercy of God, right? Is it in how sincere I am and how serious I am about this or about how much I want this out of my life? So, the confessor's confidence is in God's character in verses 1 and 2. But there is a necessary pain that we find in verses 3 through 6. Again, we're going to be flying through the psalm. There's a lot more we could talk about, but I just want to give you an overview of the story and revisit why is it that God would delight in this kind of sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit. So there is a necessary pain that the confessor feels, right? And that's described, I think, in verse 5 very well. Um, Sorry, not 5, verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. That's the source of it, right? Confession involves some pain. It involves remorse, And when David doesn't put a positive spin on his sin, it's not understandable to him. He is not just upset because he got caught or because he has consequences. David is remarkably accurate about the seriousness and the nature of sin in this psalm. Verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, or is constantly present, you could say. See, he's aware of the magnitude of his sin. It plagues him can't get it out of his mind and David instead of brushing it off he says two things about the nature of sin first he says and admits this isn't a fluke okay he's not like a generally good person and this happens to be an exemption it happens to be a bad day this is unusual this is out of the ordinary no he says in verse five this has kind of been my story from the time that I was conceived Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's not him saying, well, my mom has some issues that got passed on to me and kind of (laughs) punting and and blaming her in any way. He's saying this sin problem, it goes all the way back to the beginning. That's the first theological reality. The second is that the foulest aspect of what he's done has to do with God. Look at what he says in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. Now, David is not dismissing the hurt that he has given to others because he clearly understands that. He uses the word later, blood guiltiness, which is kind of blood on your hands, kind of thing, as related to murder. So he understands that there's harm to people. But he is so focused on the biggest problem of his sin that he describes it as only sinning against the Lord. It's kind of interesting how 2 Samuel tells the story when Nathan comes to him and he uses this analogy, and he rebukes David, of, of this mistreated poor man who had a little ewe lamb. And some, someone abused their power and came in and snatched it. And it seems like God is framing the problem in terms of the harm done to other people, and that's the core of the sin. But then God describes David's sin in 2 Samuel 12 9 by asking, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. Verse 10. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. God says to David. Verse 14. By this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So God defines the the nature of David's sin in terms of God. It's God's word that he's despising. It's God's person who he's despising and scorning. And as much as David might want to point the finger, well, the Ammonites are actually the ones who actually killed the soldier. Right? That just kind of was in the background. God says in 12.9 of 2 Samuel, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. He says, for you did it secretly. You see, God understands the nature of what's going on and that's that's why it's so fascinating that that in... Comparing this psalm in 2 Samuel 12, David is guilty of despising the Lord, even though he ought not to do that. But God will not despise David in return when the sacrifices of the broken heart are given. So God is not willing to do, at least directly to David, what David is doing to him, which is despising him. And so God is insisting that David face the nature of what he's done. There is no sin against a person that is not first a sin against God. All sin is God word. And so David acknowledges this. He knows that he, God saw. He, he's aware of everything. Whatever consequences are going to come his way, he seems to be willing to accept This is part of Psalm 51 is actually quoted in Romans 3 when Paul says, Let God be true, though every man a liar, as it is written, quote, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Which is what he says in the second half of verse 4. So Romans goes on to say that God's judgment will silence every mouth in the end. But the lies in David's head were silenced preemptively by the grace of the Lord. And David understands that now, and he understands his guilt. So we expect, after verse 4, this kind of this picture of a judge. I've only sinned against you. You're going to judge for this, uh, what I've done. This has been true of me from the beginning. The second half of verse 6 really stands out. After he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. amazing that that we've shift from kind of this judgment tone to now God delighting that finally David sees. If you're a parent, you know when you you talk to your kids and you kind of enter the corn maze of confrontation of sin, right? (laughs) You bring it up and, oh, I don't know what you're talking about is kind of sometimes the first response. And then it's blame shifting. Well, so-and-so did this, and it's kind of like this Navigating target that's always moving, and you're throwing, and you're missing, and you're throwing, and you're missing, and sometimes the road is so circuitous, right? I mean, it's just corn maze. Where am I? Where did we go? What are they thinking? And the thing that you're longing for most in that moment is not that they'll pick up the mess that they made, or that they'll blurt out the words, I'm sorry, or that you want them to see, Right? I mean, all, every, everything else just kind of fades in importance. And as a father, as a mother, you just want them to see what's the reality of what's going on. Stop lying to yourself about what's happening. And that moment, when finally, all the defenses have come down far enough to confess and open up. That joy that you have as a parent, finally getting to it. I think parts to taste, a small taste of what verse five and six are about. I'm sorry, verse six. This is such an amazing passage. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and not only that, God not only delights in just coming clean and fessing up, but then He'll actually teach you and instruct your soul to avoid the the, the things that you tripped over the time before, and He'll He'll re, reorder your loves and 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 renovate your soul because of its concern so god is invested in this truth in the inward being happening truth in the inward being is an awareness about the difference between the outside and the inside it means that when there's a discrepancy between who we say or think we are and who we really are it gets noticed It's the ability to be brutally honest with yourself or to receive input from other people. Notice it's not doing the right thing and having the right motives all the time. It's just admitting when you are having the wrong motives, it's admitting that you've done them wrong or you've had the wrong motives. It's a willingness to admit when there's that difference. It's a bit like the pains you feel when your body is out of alignment. Those pains are meant to indicate that something is not straight or right. It's the warning light on the dashboard that alerts you to a problem. But it itself is not the fix to the problem, but it at least is an indication. And that's what God is after, truth in the inward being. Because David was working overtime to try to make the outside look a lot different than what was really going on on the inside, wasn't he? If you think about it, the cover up in 2 Samuel 12 could have ended up with him looking like this compassionate hero, carer of widows. If he wasn't found out, and he was trying to prop that up, he was trying to keep that going. But instead, God outed him as an adulterous murderer. You see, God is the one who hardwired our consciences to alarm when there's a difference between our motive and our actions. And part of our corruption that happened in the fall is that those dashboard indicators dim. And they're affected. Not only that, but it's easy to ignore the warning lights on your dashboard, right? Some of you have had that check engine light for a long time. Or the check oil light is just kind of a part of your car life, right? And not adjusting to it. And you're okay with that discrepancy, but that will, in the end, as in here, cause greater pain. So, God delights to show mercy to those who are contrite, to those who are truthful in their inward being. And that process can be painful. A couple of things, just the implications for this section. Just stop and consider the greatness of God. The generosity of God. As the offended party who has issued a a sufficient sacrifice, who then continues to help us notice, he gifts us with a conscience. He alerts us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. And even in our sinfulness, he can be delighted if we're being truthful with him. God delights even when we admit to doing and thinking horrible things. And his holiness is not compromised when he extends mercy to those who are brutally honest. Because he delights when his children forsake self-deception for the truth. Because that is who he is. The care of God to instruct even our hearts To show us how we're self-deceived. He doesn't just say, well, you didn't pay attention to the warning light, and I warned you a thousand times, and I gave you a book, and I gave you a people, and I put you in a marriage, and I gave you good friends, and you ignored them all. So fooey on you, you know? I mean, when you think about the layers of prevention and of grace that God gives to us, to say that I'll even reorder and and move around the the internal realities of your heart and teach you wisdom is a great grace of God. You and I have never realized sin apart from the work of God. Never. One commentator says, inward revelation is the granting of divine wisdom. It's the mercy of God. So consider the greatness of God. Number two, consider how you deceive yourself. Isn't this really where the battle is? Being honest with ourselves, receiving correction. You see, the pain and brokenness that are happening in this psalm are really the pain of our pride dying. That's what that is. How often do we feel that pain of our pride and are willing to be corrected by that? One author says, real and genuine conviction of sin is not transient, meaning it persists. There's real change that comes from real repentance. Maybe consider the working condition of your dashboard lights this morning. Do you know some of the patterns of self-deception that are at work in you? Are you interested in what is actually motivating your behavior or have you become numb to that? Augustine says this, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know Thee. How are you tempted to redefine sin in terms other than God? Is our primary concern with sin God's glory, or is it avoiding consequences, or appeasing guilt, or self-preservation, or any of those things? Fourth, we look at the confessor's plea. We see how this is moving, where he's acknowledging his sin, but he's also acknowledging God's delight in this this transparency. So now he's going to pray, and he's going to pray boldly. One person says, to find the roots of sin is not to solve it. And that's true, right? Circumspection and and self-analysis is great as long as it's a means to an, an end, right? Of real repentance. And so David asked for two things. He asked for forgiveness and restoration, And forgiveness uses these images, starting in verse 7, of hyssop branches, which were used by priests in the Mosaic Law to cleanse people from different things. So if you touched a dead person or different things happened and you were um, categorized as unclean, uh, there was a a process you had to go through, which ended up in priests um, using hyssop branches uh, to clean you or wash you, essentially, and you were declared clean when it was done. They would wash their clothes as kind of a final step in this process, which might explain the white as snow language. And in verse 8, when it talks about, let me hear joy and gladness, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Some people think that that's the person who's returning from being ostracized or being unclean from the community, coming back into the community and hearing the sounds of the city being heard again. So there's these images of this full sense of of reinstatement or or, um, forgiveness. He talks about bones that are broken rejoicing. That's a a startling image, right? It's a big difference. God is is hiding his face not from his people, which is kind of typical in the Old Testament of how that language is used, but he's hiding his face from David's sin, which is really surprising. He uses the words blotting out like a a king uh, removing uh, an official record, either cutting an animal skin, cutting the part out that he wants removed, or blotting out. And so all these images in this psalm are meant to point to this dramatic reversal that the the unclean becomes white as snow. The bones that are broken sing. God who's hiding his face is actually hiding his face from sin. In other words, David is making an incredibly bold request. He's asking for the whole gamut of forgiveness. The gold standard. Okay? And not only that, but he's asking also for restoration. This is... Astounding if you look at it in verse 10 and 11 uh, and 12. He doesn't just stop with forgiving past sin, but God's mercy creates something new, okay? It creates restoration. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit, Imagine the God who he's offended putting in the time and energy to rebuilding and reconstructing the offender. Picture a guilty criminal in a courtroom asking a judge to mentor him, or a cop pulling someone off to the road and giving them a ticket and the person asking them for driving instructions or something of that nature. It's just that it doesn't, it's not typically how it works, it's not how it happens, but here David, boldly, in the presence of God, is saying, Oh God, start new. Start. Give me a new heart. Do the impossible. When he says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, he probably has Saul in mind, right? When we saw the, the giving and the removing of the Holy Spirit in this time, in this uh, biblical era. He's confessing his need for the presence of God to be in this repentant position. If the Holy Spirit's gone, there's no hope of that. And he doesn't just just imagine the boldness, imagine the the scope of David's sin to to pray, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want joy again, God. I want to believe that you've saved me. I want to see your work. I I want the full thing again. And he prays for willingness. God, do something in my spirit to make me willing next time to change so that this doesn't happen again. True repentance. He's praying, God, forgive my sin and reorder my heart so that I desire what what ought to be desired. Do a new and renewing work in me so that my heart bends towards you, not away from you. This is his plea: forgiveness and restoration. Normally, we, we're satisfied with one, or we shoot for one. You're just willing to forgive a person, but moving forward, that might look a little different, right? Or you you want, um, want God to forgive you for something, but you're not really interested in changing in the future, right? It's like, I think it was Augustine who said, Oh Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> kind of this half-hearted, uh, I, want, I don't want to feel guilty, but I don't want to change. But here, David, he's asking for the whole gamut. God, show me mercy in every way. The sacrifice of the broken spirit, the one that delights God, knows that they need both forgiveness and restoration. Maybe as you think about your life with God and you think about what times of confession are like, consider that. Are there things that you want to be forgiven from but not necessarily restored from? Or things that you just want to be different about your life but you don't want to have to admit what really is going on and receive forgiveness at that level? Let's move on. The confessor's ministry. In verses 13 through 19, there's a shift here. And David turns outward and says, If you do this, others are going to be helped by it. I'll teach others. My tongue is going to sing of your righteousness. He's going to declare God's praise. And mercy has this doubling effect. Because the one receiving mercy becomes more merciful still. He who's forgiven little loves little, according to Jesus. right? And the opposite of that is also true. He who's forgiven much. Loves much. And that's what we see here. See, God's mercy sparks this desire in David to help other sinners return. He says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He knows that he's one of them. He's not uh, distancing himself, he's just saying, I want to be used to bring this full circle. And you think again, the mercy of God. Why would God allow David to become a spokesperson for him? (laughs) I mean, this could be a PR nightmare. And yet, David is qualified to point to God's mercy, isn't he? He's tasted it, he's seen it, he knows it. And so David becomes kind of this poster boy for how God treats sinners. In verses 18 and 19, it talks about Zion, and some some people think that there's some uh, people in the exilic times of the Bible who are adding to this song and, and seeing the fruit of David's confession, who say, do good to Zion in your good pleasure, and build up the walls of Jerusalem, assuming that they had come down. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. So, in the end, David is instructive for the people of Israel, through this as well. It's a possible explanation for that, that language there. But notice, it's not, it's not the fact that people are giving offerings, even external, and putting animals on altars that's the problem. Because this will eventually be restored, designed, once the motives are back in place in appropriate ways. But there is an order to it. These sacrifices of a broken spirit come before sacrifices of animals and offerings. So, we've looked briefly at this story of this confessor, and I want to come back and look at and consider why do broken spirits, why are those sacrifices that delight God? See, there's really two roads that David can go, and one is the way of humility and confession, and the other is to... To strive in his own strength. In verse 16 he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You almost get the sense that he's tried this before. (laughs) I know what that's like. If it were just that easy. right? But he knows that it's not. And so why does this path that David chooses, why does it please God? I mean, wouldn't a little effort and a little action out of the gate please him more? Well, if you think about it, as we march back through those things that we looked at, we look at God's character in the beginning, right? In David's route, God is glorified for his mercy and his covenant love. And so David's path showcases who God is. It's an opportunity for the love and mercy of God to be seen, not to be impressed by someone who really wants to change, which would be the other path. The other thing we see is that the wretchedness of David's heart is exposed, even though God has the right to judge him accordingly. Instead, God delights in honesty and teaching him wisdom. So God's generosity is seen up against the nastiness of David's sin. And sin, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, and God is more glorified in this way. Also, when David prays for forgiveness and restoration, God's grace and power are seen in the reconstructed David. And you think, who would have the wisdom and the power and the ability to change around the desires of a human being? Isn't it in those, those scenarios where the, the coach who can take the player who's very you know not very athletic and they're not all that good at the start of the year, but work with them and coach them, and by the end of the year... You know, they're one of the star players. Or the teacher who can take the student who, um, who is, you know, as bored by English as any other subject, but then teaches it in a way where it kind of comes alive and it helps them to see the value of English. And so by the end of the year, they're loving English uh, from when they started. See, this, this demonstration of reconstruction of David is a way for God to show himself off, to show his power. And so God just says, if you're just willing to be humble, if you're just willing to be a broken spirit, I'll get glory from your life. David becomes this minister of mercy, or there's this turnaround story where he's looking and considering other people, and he has the freedom now to serve after being transparent about his sin. And just think about the collection of of God's grace in this room, of people who have been saved from the kingdom of darkness and have now been tasked in the mission of God to participate in the advancement of his glory. And God has called people like us to do that, of all people. And I'm not saying that in a positive way. I'm like commending it, right? Because I know myself. God is using us as a minister of mercy to minister to one another To show His glory. And so of course broken spirits are sacrifices that delight God. Because why? Because they're showing that they trust Him. Right? They trust Him more than themselves. They're willing to be corrected and to be honest and to be open before God. See God doesn't lack resources or ability or power or any of those things. And so the person who acknowledges their need for God is the person who God delights in. That's what we find with this man, David. There's all kinds of effects as we think about gospel hope and as we kind of approach our time of communion. What effect should this psalm have on us? This idea that God delights in restoring the broken. He doesn't just do it, but he delights in it. That means that God is delighted to restore us if we'll be broken before him. Think about what that means when you're caught in sin, right? It's like five minutes old, and the heaviness is still there, and you just are sickened by it, and you just think, how did I end up here? The last thing you're probably thinking about is, this is an opportunity for God to delight in me, right? Right? But according, I think what this psalm is saying is that if God delights in truth and the inward being and the sacrifices of a broken spirit, are, he's not going to despise. That matters in that moment, doesn't it? Doesn't that change that moment from a, from a hopeless kind of work-your-way-out-of-the-rut situation to, no, this is an opportunity. I can please my Father even now in the midst of sin. Think about what this means when you're interacting with a broken person. And maybe that brokenness you're irritated by, (laughs) but it's still brokenness. And if I'm reading this right, then that means that that person is in a position to delight the heart of God. So how ought we to interact with the broken if God interacts with the broken the way that he does? Think about what this means when you're tempted to perform to get God's pleasure. When those two roads are before you, just like they were before David. How attractive the road of humility is when we think that I can be a pleasing sacrifice to God if I am humble and honest. This psalm has kind of been a a lifeline for me. Uh, recently and I feel like the Lord is just is showing me a lot of things about my life and my relationship to food and my relationship to time and all these things that that he's he's doing a lot to expose a lot in me right now and I as I was thinking about the sermon and thinking about this psalm and um, it was it was a difficult difficult season to see a lot of things at one time you know you feel like he's pointing, pointing out several things at once. And I can't, just can't tell you the, the help that it was to know that at any moment I can please my Father. I can please him. If I'm honest and I'm humble and I repent of this and I'm in this season of correction of his, that for whatever reason he's seen fit to, to bring several things at the same time. Um, so if you got something, go ahead and bring it to me. It's like open season right now. <laughs> but um, anyway, just, it, was, it was such a different way of receiving conviction and of processing conviction. To know the hope of the gospel, to know and to pray, even to have the guts to pray, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Like, that just seems so far away at times, doesn't it? We can join David in this prayer and we can confess as David does with a God-centered sense of sin and a willingness to receive so that we might even be willing and able to teach others in this. There is kind of a lingering question as we think about our time of communion coming up and that is this, how is it possible for a holy and righteous God to delight in showing mercy to the repentant? There has to be a satisfaction for sin somewhere, right? It is not sufficient to just wave the wand of mercy and to never have God's justice satisfied that would taint his holiness. Listen to the exchange between David and Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 13-14. David said to Nathan after he kind of confronted him, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. When I read that, I just thought, I wonder what David thought of that. I wonder if he asked, where did God put it? Right? What do you mean, God put it away? What what has he done? Where has the Lord put David's sin? Colossians 2, verses 13 to 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God put David's sin where he puts our sin, and that is on the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And it is so helpful that Jesus instituted an ordinance that would regularly remind us that the way that we have access, the way that that we can be heard and have the hope to be restored by this God that we've offended is something that is totally detached from us and is totally something that God has accomplished by His will through His Son. Thank God that it had nothing to do with us, that He secured the salvation in the way that He did and what a fitting reminder for this morning as we think about our sin, as we think about David's reaction and God's delight in truth in the inward being to take communion together so we can remember the sacrifice that makes it possible for broken spirits to be a pleasing sacrifice to God. What I'd like to do is just have us reflect and pray a time of confession and preparation for communion. I know that it's 1130. Forgive me for that. Um, But we're going to reflect. We're going to hear or sing a song, depending on what you'd like to do, and just reflect on this, and then we'll have some communion instructions. And we'll enter into this time together. Let me pray as we get ready to enter into this time of preparation for communion. Lord, we... Come to you, a broken people. Not because we're trying to sound more humble than we actually are, but because, God, your word says that we are broken and we need you. And so, God, we come to you as your people who are secure in the new covenant. That you have sealed with your body and blood. That is our sign of of your certainty and assurance of our salvation. And we come to you today, God, uh, acknowledging that we have taken that other path so many times. The path of self-justification, the the path of, of striving in our own strength. And God, we tried to do things that we thought might please you and really what would have pleased you would be just to come to you humbly and honestly and own our sin. And so God, we're helped by that this morning, to know that that is your heart towards your repentant people. And so God, I pray that you would help us in this time of reflection to, to be done with facades. Facades. To be done with the discrepancy between the outside and the inside. And to just take this time and honestly assess where we're at. Maybe it's ways we've defined sin that have nothing to do with you. And maybe um, our hearts condemn us and we we, we don't know what to do with it. God, maybe we're not a Christian here this morning and for the first time we're hearing that it's possible to be forgiven. So God, wherever we're at, I pray you'd help us to repent. You'd help us to be mindful of your grace and to receive this psalm of hope. It's the last place we'd expect to find instructions on how to delight you. But God, it's there for that reason. So help us to be shaped by that now as we enter into this time of reflection. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.